Hey everyone, this is Erica. I just wanted to say there was a little problem with the recording of the audio for this week's episode. The individual audio track for uh, my audio did not get uploaded and the joint audio track had some really bad lag problems. Uh, so unfortunately we're missing the beginning of the episode for this week. So uh, we're going to jump right into the episode, but on behalf of me, Erica, the scientist, and also for Katie, who's not a scientist, welcome to Southern Science. The trust, the trust is broken. You've been my best friend for 15 years and the trust is broken. No, I have one, ep two episodes about parasites and the trust is gone. <laughs> the trust is gone. No, I wanted to tell you something really good that happened to me lately that will be exciting to you, I think. Yes. So, for everyone listening, um, so Katie currently lives down in New Orleans, but will be moving up to North Louisiana where I live uh, next year, next calendar year. Holler! Uh, for, her <laughs> for her husband's work. And uh, it was a real bummer to me because my plan is to graduate next spring. And so there's going to be very little overlap of us being in town together. Boo. But <gasps> <laughs> I would like to say that I have been invited to apply for a postdoc position at my school. <gasps> Are you serious? <laughs> I, I Yes, I am serious. <laughs> So, so I mean, it's only a three-year project. I don't at care. The moment. I'll take it. Could it. be more. I'll take it. Three years is better but, than no years. So it's actually it's a job in like literally the coolest lab on campus. It is a project that's funded by the NIH and NASA. It's cool as heck, and I'm super excited about it. Again, I've been invited to apply by the person who's doing the hiring, but that's still not the same thing as a guaranteed in because someone cooler than me could apply. Girl, no, but. you are so cool and so smart. You've got this job. This is the best news I have gotten in months. <laughs> like, I'm all so about like, oh my God, like you can't possibly expect me to do this podcast anymore. No, I wanted to capture like a happy scream. I'm like, yay! I know. I mean, there's so many good things about staying in town. Like, like uh, Danny could still be near his family. I won't have to move eight hours away from my family. Like, I'm moving to Shreveport, which is the most important thing. Let's focus on what matters. Yes, that is definitely like the a thing big... that matters. We will be in the same zip code for the first time since high school. Yes, yes. This is literally the best news I have gotten in like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna change that to year. I am so excited. Okay, now Yay. we have to like go pick out a house together or something. Yay. With like yeah, live together. I know, but your budget for houses is gonna be vastly different than mine. But that's okay. <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. <laughs> oh my god. Yay! Oh. Guys, that means we can do podcasts in the same house. No more internet uh, problems. Yeah, not have to deal with this internet lag. That'd be amazing. <gasps> oh, my God. Okay, that's literally the greatest news I've gotten. I want, like, a celebratory, like, shot or something. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so I'm not going to do it. But, like, I'm mentally wanting that. I'm so excited. This yeah. is so great. Erica, this is the best news. So I'm not sure if that makes it better or worse to bring it down to uh, wasp parasitism. But like I said, it's not as bad as last week. It'll be fine. I mean, but that's a low bar. 
Better than last week. Last week. Yeah, last week is rough as heck. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a pretty low bar, dude. It's like, hey, it's not worms (laughs) exploding from you. Well, thank you, Erica. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. So what is it if it's not things exploding from you? Uh so I mean there's like minor things exploding from you, but it's not it's not nearly as bad. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> we're going to be talking about for this part three of our spooky season series on zombie parasites. We're going to be talking about wasps and they have the habit of parasitizing lots of different insects, say cockroaches, spiders. Well, they're not insects, uh, caterpillars, but ladybugs. They're in the creepy family. I'm cool with calling spiders insects. We'll just say bugs in general. Uh, yeah. I was about to say they're in the creepy family. Okay. So right. Wasps. So, the thing about wasps is they're actually not technically parasites because they can exist just fine, I guess, outside of utilizing another organism as a host. So technically they're called parasitoids, which is like parasite adjacent. I don't know. It seems like a technicality to me. That doesn't even seem like a real word, parasitoid. I'm going to Google that. I imagine the majority of what will come up will be wasps. That's exactly what came up. Okay. And uh, that is a real (laughs) word for anyone listening. And I stand corrected. Erica is correct. That is a real word. (laughs) Parasitoid. Gotcha. Okay. So um, we'll kind of go through three different stages of wasps parasitizing different bugs. So we'll start with uh, wasps versus spiders. And the one I wanted to talk about. It sounds like a sci-fi movie. Well, no, it would be (laughs) a sci-fi movie if it was like giant wasp versus big ass spider versus mega croc (laughs) or something like that. Mega croc wins always. I mean, there's a ton of like a whole series of um, like five headed sharks that I'll probably uh, put as the champion of a lot of different sci-fi movies. At some point we should do that. We should look into like the likelihood of like sci-fi movie creations being a thing, but I digress spiders versus wasps. <laughs> I'm just trying to put yes. this off. So um, the one I wanted to start with as an example is the Zadipoda wasp and the Anelosimus eczemus spider. So A-N-E-L-O-S-I-M-U-S, Anelosimus examus spider, examius, sorry. And it's not at all uncommon for wasps to parasitize spiders. Wasps will lay their eggs on the abdomen section of the spider and the egg will kind of be attached there and then kind of do everything we've talked about in the previous episodes about burrowing through the carapace and eating their hemolymph, things like that. (laughs) Why? Why? Why not? You got to eat something, right? I mean, I I would prefer if we didn't like actively cannibalize living things, but okay. Well, it's not cannibalism if they're wasps and the other ones are spiders. I mean. Technicalities. It's still eating something alive. Gross. (laughs) I was trying to Google it, but a weird video popped up, so I stopped. (laughs) There's a lot you can Google, like parasitic wasp versus spider. There are Uh, a lot of pictures, at least. So apparently, like I said, wasps really like to attack spiders and manipulate their behavior. But Oh, oh my God. Oh. The one I wanted to bring up as our first example of the episode is a little more interesting than kind of the average uh, wasp versus spider host dynamic because this spider is actually a social spider. 
And there aren't a lot of social spiders. Apparently there's only about 25 species of social spiders and they live in large colonies and they work together to capture prey and they share parenting duties and not what you think of usually for spiders. I've I've never even heard of a a social spider. I thought all spiders were like introverts. Right. It's like finding out that there are solitary bees, you know, there are bees that live on their own, but it's not very common. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there are. I mean, I'm not arguing with you. I already got showed up for not, like, believing your word exists. (laughs) That's strange. Okay. Continue. So this species of spider, we'll call them the Eximia spider, um, because I can say their species name and not their genus name, apparently. (laughs) But so they, like I said, they're very social. They nest together in large nests. And um, so that's why it's weird to kind of find them by themselves and spinning nests all on their own. So there was actually a paper that talked about researchers from the University of British Columbia. Um, this was published in Ecological Entomology in 2018. And what they found was that there were spiders that are normally very communal. They spend their like almost their whole lives inside this group nest. But these were actually wandering away from their nests and getting pretty far away and then actually spinning a very dense web made of silk and other foliage that almost looked like a a cocoon and this is not something that they normally do and um this was i know where this is going (laughs) i've heard this story before right i'm not going into too much detail because we're we've we've got the theme so far oh yeah basically like create things things explode everywhere lots of goop we got it right so this is this is down uh, in the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador. So like, don't. Get Why is everything in the Amazon rainforest? Because I mean, statistically, they've got the most species. Oh my god, so. the creepiest <laughs> species for sure. Yeah, but it's, it's cool stuff too. Amazon and Australia, yeah. man. I'm not going to either one of those places. That's a good point. Yep. <laughs> So what the researchers found was that before the spiders started making these cocoons, which again, is not something that they normally do by themselves away from their nest, uh, they had actually been infected with wasp larvae. And so kind of what the normal procedure for parasitoid wasps is that the wasp will lay an egg on the spider's abdomen. The larva hatches and attaches itself to the spider, may feed on the hemolymph, may kill the spider, maybe not. But in this case, it doesn't kill the spider right away. The spider will then spin a cocoon, basically, for the wasp larva. So this new web that they're spinning that's, like, really dense and full of, like, leaf detritus and stuff is actually very cocoon-like. And then the larva actually uses that as a cocoon to pupate and then emerges later as an adult wasp. Does the spider die? Yeah, the spider's hella dead, actually. That's uh, not a happy ending, Erica. Part three is a happy ending today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, what the researchers were describing, the article that I saw uh, was describing the researchers. They're like, we saw the cocoon being spun and then we waited to see what emerged and it was a wasp. I'm like, yeah, it wasn't a spider anymore at that point. <laughs> spider got it is what he got. <laughs> Dang, man, nature, you scary. So the interesting thing is that a lot of spiders get targeted by wasps, but they're usually solitary spiders like orb weavers or whatever that you see one by themselves. And the behaviors that they're manipulated into doing aren't that much different than their normal behaviors. But these spiders 
are worth mentioning in our zombie theme because they like never leave their communal nest and spin a completely new web structure all by themselves. So that's kind of what makes them extra interesting for this zombie talk. At the time of that first paper that I mentioned, ecological entomology paper from 2018, uh, they didn't really know how the zombification would like work, what the mechanism was. And they assumed that it was an injection of hormones that make the spider think it's at a different stage of life. And they didn't really elaborate on, do they think it's like a young spider that's like out and roaming around or what? But they thought it was an injection of hormones that would get them to leave the colony. Well, I but, think it sounds like every horror film I've ever seen where like <laughs> Joe three doors down suddenly starts building weird trap in his shed. <laughs> stay away from Joe. It's usually a bad sign. Always yeah. a bad sign. Always. But there have been some other studies, like I said, from other spider wasp parasitoid relationships that kind of give a clue to how wasps are manipulating spiders in general. And so there have been two papers that um, studied a wasp that parasitizes orb weavers and oh, it I found love orb that weavers. I know they're really pretty, right? Oh, they're gonna die too, aren't they? Well, yeah. So they get parasitized by the recliner vellus Nielseni wasp. Something um, terrible. It's not great. But there have been two papers. There was one pretty recently in 2019 in the Journal of Experimental Biology. And what they actually found was that what the wasps are doing, or actually technically what the wasp larva is doing once it hatches from the egg, is it actually initiates the spider's molting behavior. And so some spiders, whenever they're molting and they're shedding their exoskeleton, they will spin themselves a little tight-knit web, almost a cocoon, because that's when they're the most vulnerable because they don't have a hard exoskeleton anymore. And so what it turns out in that case with the orb weavers is that the spiders have a high level of a hormone that's called ecdisone in their bodies. And, and that's presumably being injected by the wasp larvae. And it's, trigger, it's tricking the spider into thinking it's time to molt. And so even though it's not actually going to molt because it doesn't have any of the other signals, it starts to spin that web and then the web can be utilized by the wasp larvae. But the thing is, it's not exactly a molting web, like their normal web. The wasp larva does tweak the pattern to better suit its needs rather than the spiders. Okay, so can I interrupt for a second? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm confused. Okay, so the wasp are using the spiders for kind of like their cocoon abilities. Yeah. So why are they killing the spiders? Just because they're, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think all wasps are jerks. So <laughs> like, I, I will take it's a jerk as an answer. I'm just curious. Like the why kill the spiders is just that it's a food source because I think the spiders, I assume, are building this molting web around themselves in a makeshift cocoon that's not exactly like the one that the wasp larva uh, induces them to weave, but it is going to be around themselves in a, a protective capacity. But the wasp gets, you know, trapped in there with a spider and might as well eat something. You hungry? So. Um, I think actually they're kind of consuming the hemolymph from the spider at the same time the spider is making the web. And if you know, you know anything about spider biology, they're actually kind of interesting. <laughs> so the interesting thing about spiders, to my understanding, is that they only have muscles to contract their limbs and not to straighten their limbs. So in order oh, to straighten their limbs... It actually requires, it's a more of a, um, like a hydraulic system. Like it takes 
pressure of their hemolymph, which is a combination of their lymphatic and circulatory systems. And so that's why if you see like a spider that's all like curled up in like in your house somewhere and it's curled up into a little ball with all its legs all crumpled on itself. Yeah, they um, all look like that when they die. Right. It may not be actually even dead at that point. It's just dehydrated because without enough volume in its hemolymph, they don't have the pressure to straighten their legs out back again. Well, okay. So from now on, when I see little curled up spiders, because I love them, just give them some water and maybe they'll be okay. Maybe. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Unless they're being like, you know, parasitized by an evil wasp and then they won't be okay. Ever. But I assume if the wasp is consuming the hemolymph from the spider, then they're not going to be able to move anymore at that point, And they are just basically food at that point. Dang. Until the wasp is, emerges as a young adult. And the reason why these social spiders are at maybe a greater risk of being parasitized is that having communal arachnids, they're really easy and efficient target. And because it's like a stable uh, food source and source of hosts for the, you know, pupation stage and uh, kind of like an actually like it passes around easy, right? Like kind of basic idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Like it's, it's easier to get around in larger colonies. So the wasps actually do target larger colonies. Like a virus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Although, Hold on to that viral thought. Oh, God. Okay. That's an amazing segue into part two. We didn't plan this. No. But like I said, that is actually a really good segue. Oh, no. (laughs) Did you have any other thoughts on the uh, wasps versus spiders before we moved moved on? I mean, I think it's sad, but no. I'm worried about the virus situation, so no. (laughs) I guess I put something else in the forefront. If you're yeah. Mind. So the next wasp that I wanted to talk about kind of moving past like the basic parasitism that we've talked about, you know, wasps and spiders it is kind of a lot like the other parasitisms that we've talked about of it's just something interjecting their eggs or young into another organism and using that other organism as food until the young grows up. And the difference with the wasp is not that they're not seeking like a terminal host or a terminal environment. Like the things we talked about last week was they're just using it as a convenient food source. So the fun thing that we're going to talk about next is uh, the Dinocampus coccinellae which is a wasp that attacks ladybugs using biological warfare. No, so not ladybugs. So this c- section is titled The Zombie Babysitters, which sounds like a R.L. Stein book, frankly. Like an amazing, <laughs> I would watch that movie. It'd be a really cheesy movie. I would watch it. Why so, would you hurt ladybugs? They don't even do anything wrong. That means they can't defend themselves, right? Wasp are the worst, man. I'm like super anti-wasp. Anti-wasp, anti-worm. So wasps aren't 100% evil. They do pollinate certain plants. They are important to the ecosystem. They're not like mosquitoes, okay? Mosquitoes and ticks are useless. Excuse me, mosquitoes is Louisiana's like state bird. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so wasps do mean things to ladybugs. Right. So a lot of what I found out about this was from a 2015 paper from Proceedings of the Royal Society B by Delia et al. And like I said, what we're going to be talking about is wasps that parasitize ladybugs. And you'd think it would largely be in the same vein of what we talked about with the spiders. You know, you lay an egg 
It uses the ladybug as a host for food and then becomes an adult and moves on with its life. Fair enough. But this process is a lot more interesting and it displays a lot more behavior modification that makes it extra zombie-ish. So I did want to add an interesting thought or at least a thought that I had uh, when I was researching this is that ladybugs are the family uh, coccinellidae and they are technically beetles. And so that's the reason that the uh, this wasp is called the Dinocampus coccinellae because it targets ladybugs specifically. But even though they're called coccinellidae, even though the root word of that is the Latin word for scarlet, they're not the same as cochineal beetles, which I know about because I've gone to some natural dye workshops and actually cochineal beetles is the natural dye way to make red. So if you have like natural red number four or vermilion dye or carmine, that's actually crushed up beetles. You are so, actually uh, one of the most interesting people I've ever known. Aw. Just throwing that out there, like so interesting. <laughs> I've never known. Like every time you talk, I'm like, we should do a podcast on that. And I'm like, oh, I have like podcast ideas for the next like 300 years. <laughs> I really love natural dyes and uh, I've gone to some workshops on that and I find it really interesting. So used to be, you know, the way to make red dye was uh, crushed up beetles or technically bugs. The cochineal beetles were true bugs. Ladybugs are technically beetles. And I understand that seems counterintuitive. You know um, what? I'm going to go with you on it, though. <laughs> okay. So. That was my uh, fun fact aside on cochineal and ladybugs, but back to ladybugs. Going with the usual process that we've been talking about, wasps will sting the ladybugs and implant their eggs as usual. But um, for the first couple of weeks, the ladybug's actually fine. It's just going about its business. Uh, the larva is growing inside of it and eating its organs. I'm not sure how many of its internal organs because, spoiler alert, some of the ladybugs actually do recover from the process that we're about to describe. Yes, I love that. Yay. About a quarter of them, so it's not a guarantee, oh. but it's better than nothing. So anyway, but for about a little under three weeks, the ladybug's fine. And actually, they only have one larva in them. The paper also calls that a pre-pupa because it's not pupating yet, but that just means it's a larva. And uh, like I said, three weeks in, the larva will exit the ladybug through its abdomen. I don't know how violent a process that is. And upon exiting, it spins a cocoon between the ladybug's legs. And so this one's spinning its own cocoon. That's a plus, I guess. But what's unique no, here... Not. Why is that a plus? I mean, it's not making the ladybug spin a cocoon for it like it did for the spiders. Okay, you know? okay, fair enough. But instead of acting as, like, home construction like the spider had to be, this is more of a bodyguard behavior. So what's unique here is that the zombie-like behavior actually starts once the larva exits the ladybug's body. And so the ladybug's behavior is um, modified to basically be alive but passive and then positioned on top of the cocoon for the wasp. So the wasp is in its cocoon, it's pupating, it's becoming an adult wasp, and the ladybug just kind of stands over it and acts as a bodyguard basically for about a week until the wasp emerges as an adult. And 
the question is, why is the ladybug doing this? The larva is already out of it. Why is it hanging out? And it's not just like standing all posted up over the cocoon. It's actually like occasionally twitches its wings and like flutters them so that it looks kind of like big and intimidating. And it's basically just like I said, being a big bodyguard, just like, hey, don't mess with this cocoon. I'm watching it. <laughs> after it's had its, after it's like had something explode out of it. Yeah, and had its internal organs eaten and all that kind of stuff. How is it still alive? My assumption is that it didn't eat that many internal organs. I don't know. The larva was in there for three whole weeks. I don't know, like for 20 days. I don't know how it's fine, but it's fine. It's fine. So the secret to this, as was uh, discovered in that uh, 2015 paper that I mentioned, is that uh, what's actually doing the controlling of the ladybug here is a virus. And so this is what was kind of prompted the segue into this section is that it's actually a virus that's doing the behavior control or the zombification of the ladybugs. It's not actually the wasp larva itself. So this virus is called Dinocampus coccinellae paralysis virus or DCPV is what the paper called it. And that just means it's a virus that causes paralysis and it's associated with the wasp Dinocampus coccinellae. Fair enough. So okay. The virus is actually originally stored in the oviduct of the female wasps and it replicates in the wasp larvae. So it's transmitted to the ladybug host when the larva actually develops inside the ladybug. So the virus is transmitted at the same time that the egg is deposited in the ladybug and then the virus replicates and you get more copies of it at the same time that the larva is growing for those three weeks inside of the ladybug. And during that time, the virus actually moves to the ladybug's nervous tissue and the ladybug starts to develop this uh, neuropathy, which is degrading specifically the glial cells in their nervous system. What's and a glial cell? So the glial cells are the, ce the short answer is it's the cells in your brain that aren't your neurons. I didn't know we so had brain cells that weren't neurons. There's a lot, actually a lot of cells in your brain that aren't neurons, and there's several different kinds of glial cells, but there's a few ways to think about them. Uh, so your neurons are what's doing all of the talking to each other to kind of convey thoughts and actions and cause movement throughout your body and allow you to experience sensations, all that kind of stuff. Your glial cells serve purposes like insulating your neurons so that there's not a lot of crosstalk, or there will be glial cells next to synapses where neurons are talking to each other, mm -hmm. and then once the chemical signal is done, then glial cells will help to take up excess neurotransmitters so that the signal doesn't last longer than expected. Okay. So, you know, they're not as fancy as neurons, but they are very important for central nervous system functioning. You need them. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. So, unfortunately, this virus specifically targets the glial cells in the ladybug. So those cells kind of start to degrade. They get a lot of like vacuoles, which is kind of effectively big empty spots inside mm -hmm. your cell that aren't very good for its function. Okay. Um, and then the ladybug also starts to develop this antiviral immune response. And that correlates with its paralytic symptoms and behavior modification. And so the way the ladybug is behaving during this time, um, kind of immediately before and then once the larva erupts from it, the ladybugs exhibit a partial paralysis and tremors, which includes the like wing flicking that we talked about, uh, a gait disturbance, 
kind of like you know your stereotypical zombie <laughs> um, oh it's funny except it's not because ladybugs <laughs> they have a like i said slow limited movement everything we've been talking about um Boy, and it ladybugs. kind of su it suggested to the researchers that there was like a severe neurological disorder going on so they narrowed it down found out that the virus is replicating specifically in the cerebral ganglia of the ladybugs and that starts actually before the wasp larva, larva emerges but this replication of the virus only happens while the larva is developing so once the larva exits the ladybug, the ladybug can start mounting its antiviral response and clear the virus from its system. Oh, that's nice. The, pa the paper actually has some really cool neural imaging of the nervous system of ladybugs, which I'd never seen anything cool like that before. Um, like the facts about where the virus is replicating and like the fact that it's always associated with lipid droplets. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. But the important thing is that when the larva leaves the ladybug, uh, the ladybug's neurons are at a point where they're really degenerating. Mm -hmm. And that may be triggered by the antiviral immune response. And like I said, the glial cells are being particularly affected by this. And so that's affecting like their behavior in the way of vision, movement, sexual behavior, survival, everything like that. Uh, mostly, the researcher said, because of the glial cells' involvement in neurotransmitter clearance. So you're ha if the glial cells aren't well enough to take up excess neurotransmitters after a synapse fires, then you've got that signal lasting a lot longer than it's supposed to inside the brain, and it just messes up all of the signaling in your brain. So uh, once the larva leaves the ladybug, though, it seems like the virus can no longer replicate. So the ladybug starts clearing the virus. And that's during the period where it's clearing the virus seems to be where it's just kind of standing still doing its bodyguard behavior, because that's where it's recovering from having really had its neurons completely eaten through. That's why it's mostly paralyzed. But after about a week, it can kind of recover. So it can like think for a week and then that's the amount, but that's the amount of time that the wasp needs to finish pupating and emerge as an adult. So that's like, it's this weird lineup of the timing so that by the time the ladybug is getting, it gets better, that's when the wasp is ready to move on. So it all, it still works out for the wasp. Dude, nature's scary. <laughs> like straight but up. <laughs> I know it's weird that, that like works out. And so, yeah, it was really weird for um, this to not be just a larval dri driven thing. Like with the spiders, they're like, well, the larva is just injecting hormones straight into the spider. So that must be it. But this is like a whole separate, I wouldn't really say organism, but like, I guess a bi biological device involved in that there's a virus that's causing this behavioral modification that benefits the wasp and the, and this virus is associated with the wasp and grows with them. And so the wasp is definitely using it for biological warfare. But like I said, the good thing is about a quarter of the ladybugs actually recover and clear the virus from their system, then go about their lives. The downside is like the snails I mentioned last week, they can get parasitized again, which is a super no. bummer. So they get exploded again. Yeah. But hey, I mean, they got through it once, right? They, they should be fine. You know, Erica, I, I don't know if that's the way the ladybugs feel. Like as a therapist, I feel like if we had therapy with the ladybugs, they wouldn't necessarily share that viewpoint of, oh, no, I've gotten they... through it. It's fine. It's fine. I can handle it. It's no that is absolutely terrifying. I am not a fan of this life. So. 
if you're not a fan of this life, then you may want to be like a cockroach because the third part of our talk today is how to fight back against <laughs> parasitoid wasps. Okay, so this is going to be good news, in other words. It's going right. to be like how to beat them down. Like, yes, exactly. Like go, so, get the wasp. So wasps are real intense on being, you know, parasitoid. They love using other organisms as babysitters and bodyguards and straight up food sources for their young. But some organisms have figured out a way to fight back. And if you can think of any animal that's most likely to survive a zombie apocalypse, it's probably cockroaches. Oh, definitely. Oh, it's not even <laughs> close. Like cockro I mean, cockroaches will survive anything. Exactly. You know, like cockroaches are like the the epitome of like what you want to be if you come back to be like a like really amazing insect. Right. So they're very they can survive. So here's here's the part of the talk where we learn how to survive the parasitism of wasps. Be a cockroach. Yes. So uh <laughs> For this section, we're going to talk about emerald jewel wasps, and they're actually very pretty. Let me see. Um, time to Google. I'm Googling. Actually, if you want to Google anything, one of the things that I decided not to talk about because it didn't involve enough behavioral Ooh. modification, in my opinion, was the tarantula hawk. Girl, Google tarantula hawks. Those are like really pretty wasps that they will mess you up. Fair enough. I will going to sit here and tell you, though, this is a beautiful wasp. The emerald jewel wasp? Yeah, it's really pretty. If I was ever going to be a wasp, this would be the wasp I wanted to be. This is a beautiful wasp. Well, don't say that before you've seen a tarantula hawk, though. Okay, let me, really pretty let me look it up. Tarantula hawk. Tarantula hawk wasp. Let's see. Okay, also pretty, the giant stinger hanging up the end of it, though. It's kind of <laughs> mess is, like, ruining it for me. Like, the gold, the green one was better. I was more pro yeah. emerald wasp. Emerald wasp kind of yeah. had it going on for me. That's the Slytherin in you. That probably, it's probably the Slytherin in there. Yep. <laughs> Although, like, if you want to see that giant stinger on tarantula hawk wasps, so, uh, you know that YouTube channel of the guy that lets himself get stung by all the different wasps ever? Coyote Peterson or something? I forget his last name. Coyote something. No, yeah, he no, I, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, he has a YouTube channel, and basically it's just him getting stung by... Oh everything like he starts with like fire ants or something and we'll moves up to like bullet ants and tarantula hawks and like it it's bad it's so bad the therapist to me has so many questions i mean it gets so the youtube questions. hits right i know i know um, oh my god it's, okay okay that's a it's choice rough, man that's a choice it's rough okay let's talk about this beautiful green wasp that looks okay, nice beautiful Beautiful green wasp, the emerald jewel wasp, or the ampulex compressa. No, emerald and jewel wasp. Let's go with that. <laughs> a lot of what I'll be talking about came from actually a really good Scientific American article from 2017 that sums this up pretty well if anyone's interested. But um, we'll skip over the basics of like wasps parasitizing organisms. A lot of it's the same. But this wasp is incredibly precise in the way it stings its victim. So a lot of the ones we've talked about before. The first sting is to deposit the egg. It's like, it's not a sting with a real stinger. It's actually a sting with the ovipositor. And it's the larva or a virus that accompanies the larva that induces the behavioral modification. Now for this wasp, it's actually the sting itself and byproducts of the sting from the adult wasp that are causing the behavioral modifications. So this one's a little different. Okay. So 
so the first thing that the wasp does to the cockroach is sting the thoracic ganglion, which is the nerve cord that controls the front legs of the cockroach. And it temporarily paralyzes the legs. But this is temporary and that's important. I've seen this movie. <laughs> the second sting is to the brain, but it's actually to very specific regions. It needs to be like to the brain itself, not to like the hemolymph or anything nearby. And actually the stinger, this is like horrifying, but they've mapped it. The stinger actually feels around inside of the roach's oh, head no. to get <laughs> to get past the ganglionic sheath and find the regions of the brain that are the target that are necessary for inducing the behavioral modifications. I didn't and actually, need that imagery. I didn't need that. Thank you. No. And, and they can tell that it's, it's really targeted because if the scientists like surgically remove those regions of the cockroach brain, which is not the kind of surgery I'm going to be doing as a scientist, but whatever. A it's thing. important. Whose job is that? Who is like, I'm a cockroach brain surgeon. I mean, I didn't cite it properly, so I don't know. I can't tell you the uh, name of the researchers who like, that. Like as a like, I do career work, and I have never had a kid put down. I want to be a cockroach brain surgeon on their career well, plans. Oh my god! Now okay. that now that you know that that's a job, you can advise people. There you go. Like, I feel what? like yep, cockroach brain surgeon. That's what you need to do for the rest of your life. If scientists remove those regions, the wasp's sting that's meant to affect those regions takes longer because it's it's really rooting around in there. It's like, where's the brain? I, I can't find it. Right. But it's, it's very specific regions. And the point of that sting, the second sting, is that it actually delivers a neurotoxin that causes um, like half an hour of grooming behavior. Um, and that's probably due to the presence of dopamine in the venom. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that basically is a motivator. I've seen like the article proposed, like, we don't know if that grooming is important because they want to have like a clean host that doesn't have any fungus or whatever on it. Or if that's just a side effect of the dopamine being injected. But then after that, the roach is very passive and calm and the thought was that that would have toxins that were targeting GABA receptors. And GABA is like the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. And so it would be just sending like inhibitory signals and causing like not a lot of movement. But the thing is the roach is not paralyzed at this point. It can move if it's stimulated. It just chooses not to. Like it's lost free will basically. Like um, a zombie. Basically. And this is important mostly because a wasp can't carry a full-sized cockroach. Fair enough. Fair enough. It needs the cockroach to still be able to move, but choose not to move. So what happens next is the wasp will bite off the ends of the roach's antenna, drink their hemolymph for food, I guess. Like um, a vampire. Then, yes. Okay. And then it will kind of use the antenna. It looks like tapping them or whatever to steer the roach into the wasp's nest or like a hole in the ground. And that's when it lays the egg on the roach's body. So like all the other wasp parasitisms we've talked about, the behavior modifications don't start until after the egg is laid. And this happens before the egg is laid. So all this has to happen. The ro roach has to be like really calm and passive and that kind of stuff before the egg is even laid. And then the wasp will kind of just basically cover up the hole with like loose dirt and debris and stuff. And the, the roach will just sit there. It's got enough neurotoxins still in it. It's just going to sit there and hang out and be eaten alive by the developing larvae 
like we've talked about with the others. (laughs) (laughs) But in like, technically, if it had control of its brain, it could just leave. You know, it's like we talked about with the human zombies in the first episode. If you weren't having your brain drugged with chemicals, you could just leave. You know, yeah, that makes it creepier, actually. Yeah, it sucks. But so how do they fight it? You said they could fight it. Yes, they do fight it. Uh, I do want to say one other thing. There are several wasp species that do this that are also Ampulex uh, genus. But one that I saw uh, was named the Ampulex Dementor. And it is legitimately named after Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Which was a good uh, callback seeing as I just pointed out your uh, Slytherin tendencies. So So, the question is, how do you keep this from happening? Because this is this is bad for cockroach. Once they get these stings and the injections of neurotransmitters, they're they're slap out of luck. Yeah. So the question is how to fight back to not be turned into a zombie in the first place. And there's actually a paper that was released on Halloween of 2018. They they signed it, I guess, to release on Halloween. And the name of the paper is called How Not to Be Turned into a Zombie. And the author is named Catania. And that was like, that's a legit title. That's amazing. I love that. Scientists are fun. Yes. Sometimes. So the question is, how does a cockroach prevent this from happening? And basically the simple answer is they fight back. And the paper is really interesting in that it really well documents how the roach fights back. And so basically it has, it's like the first step is it kind of posts up where it gets really tall on its arms and stands real high, shifts its weight. So it picks up one of its back legs and then it brings its back leg really far forward and then sweeps it back in this big karate kick and sweeps it back. So it tries to roundhouse kick the wasp. hundred percent. if you take a martial arts it's more of an axe kick because it's coming down and not forward but that's uh that's just me so it basically axe kicks this wasp square in the head it travels really far this is like a big like at least 120 degree arc of movement that it makes in 15 milliseconds and there's like really cool videos of the wasp doing it and they like raise their arm really high and then really like down yes i love it oh my god i love it and they they karate kick the heck out of these wasps and the wasps like literally goes flying and bounces off the edge of the container that they were making all these videos in because the um that 2018 paper has some really cool videos attached to it and you could probably look online if you look online for like cockroaches fighting zombies or whatever and so while you google i would like to read an excerpt from the abstract of this paper please do go ahead while you google okay if you just google like cockroach attacking parasite wasp or something like that okay i'll, I'll put cockro- cockroach killing wasp and i got a car can okay attacking <laughs> i was like that's not okay. right roaches kick wasp in the head that'll work yes. it says here it is shown that many cockroaches deter wasps with a vigorous defense successful cockroaches elevated their bodies bringing their neck out of reach and kicked at the wasp with their spiny hind legs often striking the wasp's head multiple times Failing this, the elevated on-guard position allowed cockroaches to detect and evade the wasp's lunging attack. If grasped, the cockroaches parried the stinger with their legs, used a stiff-arm defense to hold back the stinger, and could stab at and dislodge the wasps with tibial spines. 
Lastly, cockroaches bit at the abdomen of wasps, delivering the brain sting. An aggressive defense from the outset was most successful. Thus, for a cockroach not to become a zombie, the best strategy is be vigilant, protect your throat, and strike repeatedly at the head of the attacker. And frankly, that sounds like excellent advice I'm in any you, situation. Like just generally, there's just a good, I'm trying, I'm trying to find the, a video of like the wasp doing it. So I'm like YouTubing while I'm talking to you. I'm like, I need mm -hmm. to do this. I need to see a wasp or a cockroach round kicking a wasp. Yeah. I mean, like overall, like be vigilant, protect your throat and strike repeatedly at the head. Like that's good combat advice, man. That's, that's I'm for that. In other words, basically what they teach everyone to do which is if someone's attacking you, definitely round cows kick them to the face. Right. So the moral of the story is if anyone tries to turn you into a zombie, kick them in the head. Absolutely. This is pretty successful, actually. So the roaches that do this, that try to fight back, about two-thirds of the time they're successful and they avoid, avoid being zombified. That's awesome. I love that. So, I mean, statistically... It's good. Actually, I know where you can find videos. Um, there's some videos from Vanderbilt University that you can find at LiveScience.com. Okay, I'm gonna write. I'm gonna get that. Let's see, Vander. This sounds amazing. If you just do LiveScience.com, and then I can like, it has a number, and then Roach Kicks Prevent Zombification is like what? the end of the website title. LiveScience.com. Okay. And then if they have a search bar on LiveScience.com. Roach kicks prevent zombification. And there's this really cool picture of like this roach that's like really posted up, like in a defensive posture. Oh, I see it. Okay, let's standing see. Next to Roaches it. kick, really cool. kick wasps in the head to avoid becoming zombies. Yeah. Nice. Okay, this is so cool. Roach's kicking power comes from energy storing wind up before the leg is released, similar to the swinging of a baseball bat. So essentially, it's the same thing as us like swinging a baseball bat at someone's face. Yeah, or a properly chambered kick. Either Which, way, okay, I mean, so just really. Not everyone did Taekwondo, Erica. Not everyone had a <laughs> time roundhouse kick. I'm going to do better with a baseball bat, which is funny because in a lot of zombie movies, the go to weapon is the baseball bat. That's true. That's what people have on hand. It all ties together. I love it. Okay, this is great. Wait, I'm watching it. This is hilarious. Wait. Oh, dude, that thing kicks hard. It does, yo. It like. Oh my Straight god! It, like, it it beats it. Oh my god! That wasp doesn't have a chance. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's so cool. Everyone should Google that. That is the coolest thing I've seen today. So the moral of the story: there's all these wasps that are trying to parasitize organisms, but all you gotta do is fight back. It, it works two thirds of the time. That's the majority of the time. So why not? I love it. That is so cool. Okay. Super cool. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I told you we'd end on a high note. I definitely appreciate it. It makes me feel better. So in case you get zombified, there's always the chance that you can just roundhouse kick something to the face. Technically, before you get zombified. Before you get tries zombified. tries to zombify yeah. you, fight back. Fight I back. I mean, frankly, that's, that's a good rule for if anyone's trying to make you do something you don't want to do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> fight back. Beat it down. And I think this is actually, yeah, this is, okay, you're right. You're right. I'm actually in a better mood. This, like, didn't kill my soul, even though we talked about murdering ladybugs. You know? No. Yeah. I'm not as dead as I could be. All right. So, um, <laughs> if you don't have any more zombies for us, what's your mental health this week? My mental health week is, quite simply, take your meds. You know, I, I understand that there's a lot of pushback from a lot of people about taking uh, medication to help control uh, like mental health 
conditions. I personally was very against taking antidepressants for a long time and eventually realized that I was actually not functioning without them. And over the past few, few weeks, I've had some, I don't know, my brain decided to self-destruct and <laughs> have now started uh, taking some anxiety medication for like situationally, it's kind of a as needed thing, but it's really helpful to have as needed. So the point is that it's a great thing that society has advanced to the point where we can identify chemical shortcomings mm -hmm. <laughs> in our brains and find the appropriate formulations to adjust and adapt for such chemical shortcomings. And, you know, if you can't make your own neurotransmitters, then store-bought store is fine. fine. But yeah, I love so that. Okay. Remember to take your meds. So that's an awesome one. And it kind of ties into kind of like what I've been thinking about this week. I've been reflecting really hard on like the concept of empathy, right? Uh -huh. I feel like with COVID and just kind of everything that's going on, it's so easy to get frustrated with the people around us. And, you know, the truth of the matter is you don't know that person's story. You don't know what they're going through. You know, and that's yeah. kind of my big thing that I've been like focusing really hard on lately. I had a situation the other day at the grocery store where there was someone who just could not get it together in the aisle, was like taking up the whole <laughs> aisle, like wouldn't get out of the way that I needed to like, I wanted just like a jar of spaghetti sauce. And like, I found myself getting annoyed and like 30 seconds in, I was like, you know what? I don't know what's going on with this person, why it's taking them so long to get the spaghetti sauce. And honestly, my husband's not going to be home till 8 p.m. anyway because he's a trauma surgeon. Why am I in a hurry? It's like, I got time to get the sauce. It's like, I it's have like, time to get the sauce. So just empathy <laughs> and like giving the people in your life the benefit of the doubt, you know? Out <laughs> of my mental health this week is like patience. Patience is a good word for that. And as a teacher, that's, that's something that's really hard for me. <laughs> get it together y'all we got stuff to do standardized test coming up that sounds like a good sign off like remember you have time to get the sauce <laughs> you have time to, okay that's our new hook remember you have time to get the sauce <laughs> you can hit us up at southernsciencechicks at gmail.com whenever you feel like it um and you'll get an email back from us if you have any questions about the episode or have any requests for future episodes our last zombie podcast is next week. Yeah, releasing just in time for Halloween. <laughs> and next week we'll be on the possibility, are you a zombie? Oh, and Erica, I don't know if I want that. <laughs> and potentially zombifying situations that may involve humans. I'm not calling Just in time for the spookiest day of the year <laughs> you're gonna be on your own dude i'm not doing it you're on your own i don't want to know if i'm a zombie or not erica will be presenting yeah. the next podcast alone <laughs> just to, to to the void <laughs> to the void to the void no, it'll, be, it'll be re real fun uh, and again uh special thanks also again to my grandfather for our intro and outro music again love it so oh, yeah which is so southern it's not even funny like absolutely loving it it's great super southern <laughs> Like, I feel even more Southern than I already am as a person. Like, <laughs> like I mean, no, I'm just serious. Like, with my accent, LSU, like, you know, live in New Orleans. I, like, eat cracklings for breakfast. Like, it makes me feel extra <laughs> Southern. I appreciate it. It does not count if you call them cracklings. cracklings. It's cracklings, girl. Cracklings. Crack well, you know what? I don't know if we have Northern viewers. They're not going to know what crackling is. Or, like, you can't pronounce it. Like, they don't know what like, crackling or any of that business. You know, chitlins. They don't know what any of that is. Mm. Mm, I know, right? 
tasty. Okay, <laughs> we will see y'all next week before I sit here and just get myself hungry. And once again, be sure to hit us up at southernsciencechicks at gmail.com if you have any questions and just want to talk to me or Erica. Have a great day. Bye. Do you ever tell the friends we knew that you remember me?